Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. That's, yeah, <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Uh, you can laugh, I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I managed to stay alive for 16 hours. I'd say it to your face, and I'll say it to you now. I'm down Swampfield, and we'll see them all. What you doing down here, you Johnny man? New York, I love you. But you're bringing me down. New York was his town, and it always would be. And Lopez watching away. And it's hit deep to left center. Andrew Jones on the run. This one has a chance. Home run by Piazza. And the next lead, 3-2. Muhammad Ali in the red trunk. Joe Frazier in the green trunk. Almost ready for the fight of the century. Meant to read on the forecourt. Right side from 20. Jumps. Yes. Willis has hit on his first two. Behind the I know we're going to win. I have that attitude. I feel that way. And it's not overconfidence thing. It's football stance. Not easy. On to it comes Houghton. And Houghton with the shots. And it's there. What splendid sparkling opportunism for the old left peg this time. Remember Stuttgart 88. It's Ray Houghton once again. It's Italy nil. It's Ireland 1. This is incredible. We're on location for today's Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast, and that location is the Brass Monkey Bar in the Meatpacking District of Manhattan. Owen here, Ken's here, Murph's here. Can I, I? I feel I should say that we are the only people in this bar at the moment. In this, in this section of the bar, just in case you were thinking. It's a, it's a fairly quiet... <laughs> yeah. This um, isn't the big ambience. Wednesday show that we've been hyping up uh, mm. in front of a huge crowd. We did say there were over a thousand people looking. It wasn't just looking for tickets. It wasn't just that that was a hoax. No. Or that they all were just trying to lure us in and then not <laughs> turn up. No, is... they, they've sectioned, cornered off a, a part of this, of this vast establishment yeah. purely for recording purposes. So we thank them for that. And all. we've arrived to find New York City awash with anticipation for the Republican and Democratic primaries that take place a week from today. It's going, to be, it's going to be a good day next Tuesday for Hillary and for Donald. Donald Trump expected to absolutely kill it here, Kenny. He holds a 33-point lead over John Kasich, actually. Ted Cruz isn't even in, in the top two of a three-horse race in New York. Well, Ted Cruz disrespected New York. What did he say? Uh, he, he, said, uh, he said something about, this was in the debate a while ago, about uh, Donald Trump having New York values, by which he meant, uh, you know, not the values of whichever let's say, more southerly state they were in at that time. <laughs> um, and it's something, <clears throat> it's something that uh, Trump has been relentlessly beating him over the head with mm. ever since. Um, 
It's in hard New York. though. Yeah, it's 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 hard though. I mean, how is he to know that people in New York would remember a remark like that? I mean, surely there's a statute of limitations on something like that. I mean, that remark was for the audience to which he said it. I mean, it's pretty unfair to then take that sentence out of that audience and replay it to the people who he's grievously insulted. Sure, and it's not like New Yorkers are a type to take great pride in their city and no. get really annoyed if people start slagging well, them off. They could take or leave New York. <laughs> I've <laughs> noticed that. They really could. The, the uh, New York Daily News um, headline on, that was the uh, that was the headline, the day of... of um, do you see it there? I see it there. Well, do you want me to read it, or...? Why not, Owen? Drop dead, Ted. And that's the Statue of Liberty giving Ted Cruz the bird there. <laughs> so, uh, oh, they're a creative bunch, in fairness, I must say. What does it matter that uh, Donald Trump's, uh, you know, policies, so, you know, such as he <laughs> seems to say that they are at this time, um, you know, if they had been applied throughout history, this city wouldn't, wouldn't exist. Uh, all of the great things about this city wouldn't, in fact, ever have happened in a world that conformed to the, the you know, ideas that Donald Trump is putting forward. But, on the other hand, he is from here. We're going to win so much. We're going to win at every level. We're going to win economically. We're going to win with the economy. We're going to win with military. We're going to win with health care and for our veterans. We're going to win with every single facet. We're going to win so much, you may even get tired of winning. And you'll say, please, please, it's too much winning. We can't take it anymore. Mr. President, it's too much. And I'll say, no, it isn't. We have to keep winning. We have to win more. We're going to win more. We're going to win so much. I love you, Albany. Get out and vote. You will be so happy. I love you. Thank you. Thank you. So, so there are two people that are reminded of there. One of them is obviously Charlie Sheen. Mm. <laughs> um, Charlie Sheen, when he had that uh, sort of brief um, frenzy of publicity a couple of years ago, mm. he seemed to have, have hit a bit of a, a speed wobble. You mean when he was starring Three and a Half Men? Uh, it was just after that. Just, oh, not related to his acting it chops. Was, it, was, it was just after he was no longer working for Three and a Half Men. It was, do you wasn't not remember two, that? Wasn't it Two and a Half Men? Two, oh yeah, of course. Sorry, it's two, 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 two men and a kid, two men and, two and, and a boy. Yeah, was isn't that it? Sorry, two men and a slightly annoying child actor. But aren't they all? Aren't they all? Sorry, I digress. Um, no, I remember he he had a he he did a bunch of interviews and he coined the the, the catchphrase "winning." Oh yeah, no, I remember. I remember. And he, he signed up to Twitter and he got like two million followers in about three seconds. You know, everyone wanted to see what Tradishim was going to say next. But of course, after a while, it fizzled out. Mm. And it turned out people weren't even really that interested in Charlie Sheen. He finally went to bed, I think. Is <laughs> uh, and that, I wonder if, if, if that's happening a little bit with, uh, with Trump. Um, you know, slightly slower time frame, but similar kind of thing. The other person is Howard Dean. Do you remember Howard Dean? Yep. He was running for, uh, he was running for the Democratic nomination in 2004. I think it was 2004. The one that John Kerry ended up winning. And he... Uh, at one point, at one of his rallies, unleashed uh, um, what, compared to that, was a really sober, uh, <laughs> like... He like, just kind of woohooed a little too vigorously. That's basically... I watched it back, actually, not too long ago, maybe like a year ago. Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington to see today back to White House. Yeah! I can't, <laughs> yeah. I can't actually get up that high. Yeah. But he did that. And, and at that time, it was literally the whole world, well, you know, all, all the people following American politics went, well, 
that's him out of the he's race. He's fairly flamed out of this race. He's, you know, that's, you know, in horse racing terms, you know, he's literally, he's crashed into the hedge. He's, he's totally gone. Um, but this is, uh, you know, this is just every single day now. <laughs> every, every day Trump does, you know, makes Howard Dean look like a, a, a boring sort of salary man reading out an earnings statement. And it doesn't matter anymore. It's like a lot has changed in the 12 years or so uh, in terms of, what's expected of public figures and the decorum that they're supposed to observe. I'll tell you who will not be voting for Donald Trump. His own kids. Do you hear uh, this? Uh, oh, oh, the, 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 pen, the pennies have fallen from uh, their eyes, have they? Trump acknowledged the two of his children won't be able to vote in the New York primary because they missed the registration deadline. They feel very, very guilty, he said. <laughs> they couldn't give a shit about politics. He was probably not in a position to say. Mm. Uh, yeah. I just forgot that deadline <laughs> there. So it's off, never really been goes a political family. Big thanks to Aer Lingus for flying us out here and to Fitzpatrick Grand Central, brilliant hotel, for putting us up. And by us, I include Henry Sheffin and Andy Lee, who travelled over and are ready to go for the big show on Wednesday night, right here in the Brass Monkey, upstairs and upstairs again on the rooftop bar, where there will be actual people besides us. Mm -hmm. There will be a huge amount of people there uh, ready to go for that one. And it will be available as a podcast on Thursday Des Bishop is going to drop by, you, you mentioned that? Yes, indeed. You name, on, you yes, name indeed. dropped earlier on just in conversation. Clang on well, I'm clang. Gonna, I'm going to name drop right back. Okay, go on. John Duddy. <laughs> sure, Duddy and Lee never got it on in the ring, but, but. see them joust verbally <laughs> tomorrow <laughs> night here at the Brass Monkey. <laughs> you, did, you, you didn't like that game? You, you, were, you were promising some kind of far and away style. Uh, Bare knuckle brawl. Well, I mean, come on. I don't know if we can ask them to do that, can we? No. I mean, didn't they didn't they circumvent uh, the law of the land in New York by like putting them putting these <laughs> massive fights on in boats uh, on the Hudson? Boats and roof, happen, boats and rooftop bars. I think they're the only place you can do well, it. Well, well, let's uh, get down to the legislators <laughs> and see what we can work out. First show. Oh, we'll also be reacting to all the week's Champions League on that big show tomorrow as well. So, really, really looking forward to that. First show of the week is out now, where we took a trip, myself and Murph, to Randall's Island to catch up with Johnny Glynn, Galway hurler probably New York footballer this summer and had a great chat about Jordan Spieth also talked about Greg Norman the art of losing in sport essentially and and life even Sam Weinman is a friend of US Murphs who was in don't here say at another Brass word Monkey. that's, that's good enough for me on uh, popping those later on this part a man who was signed by Alex Ferguson at Manchester United as a teenager in the late 90s he learned his football training learned his trade with Roy Keane Beckham Giggs Skulls was a European champion with Brian Kerr's under 16s before having his career ended way too early by injury. I actually remember Kevin Grogan from his days at UCD. He came back from UCD. We'll, we'll ask him about this, hopefully. He came back from Manchester United, played for UCD for like a season or two with the idea, I think, of going back to Manchester United. Essentially, it was part of a, a means to try to ease his injuries, to go back and play part-time football and also take up studies mm. in UCD. He was always an absolutely superb player. You know, there was a lot of rough-and-tumble type football and you saw this guy in the middle who was clearly a cut above in terms of his passing ability and uh, and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, would, it, he, would it be too much to say, Owen, that he inspired young cub reporter Owen McDevitt to uh, follow the career that he eventually chose? Cub reporter of the, was it the UCD Observer? It was the uh, Observer, yeah. The UCD Observer. And you were sitting there in the um, bleachers uh, chewing gum or whatever with the other reporters, notepad tucked in, in your hat band. <laughs> it was a notepad in those days. Certainly. And uh, Kevin Grogan. Uh, pretty much wowed you. He opened your eyes to what football at a world-class level looked like. And not even, Ken. Yeah, that could be, that could be said. And not even a chastening experience with Pat Dolan could put me off. 
then St. Oh, Pat's no. manager. Will I get back to, will I talk about this another time? Hear about my <laughs> well, I mean, if you, can, if you can tell us it in 15 seconds. So UCD were playing St. Pat's, and it was a yeah. league, league cup quarterfinal. And already too much information. Think Doesn't Saint, bode well for the speediness yeah. of this. Uh, go on, go on. Go. I think St. Pat's came and plundered, came to Fortress Belfield and plundered oh, a one goal into the, the fortress. A smash and grab. Yeah, yeah. To take back to Stadium of Light there, Richmond Park. Any of our UK listeners who listen regularly to the show oh or anyone God, in the US, what are, what are these guys talking about? Oh anyway, I saw, I, was, I left, I had done my report, I had it filed. Did I have it filed? I had notes written down. I don't, can't remember how you did mm. it back then. And I was walking home thinking, ah, that was okay. Not, not, not a great day, really. Put it in my third or fourth match report. Then who did I see? But Pat Dolan, who was St. Pat's manager. Mightn't even, anyway, yeah, it was certainly Pat Dolan. I can't remember the exact uh, scoreline from the game, but I, I said to him kind of a few words, a bit of reaction to the match. And he says, yeah, no problem at all. Uh, perfectly friendly. He said, can I just ask you one question? I said, uh, sure. What's going on with that hat? And I was like, huh? Huh? trying to look up at the hat I'm wearing. You know, it's kind of weird when somebody points it out. Shoes, yeah. fine. You look down, you see yep. the shoes. Hat, I'm like, Ugh. What hat, where are you wearing? I think it was, I won't identify the club, Ken. But the club was not belonging to the League of Ireland. Oh, was, you were probably you were wearing across a, the water. You were probably wearing a Manchester United baseball hat. I'm, <sighs> I'm going to say, I'm going to guess that's what you were wearing. I was wearing a hat from a club across the water at the time, Ken. And New, York, New was York Yankees. No, <laughs> Manchester United. Um, a half and half Manchester United, New York Yankees hat. Yeah. But yeah. listen, I, I stumbled on, blundered on, and got my interview. Got yeah. my post-match quotes. <laughs> I love that Pat Dolan pulled you up on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Kevin Grogan is now building a brilliant coaching career in New York, by the way, just to get back to that point. And that's why we're chatting to him. He's going to be in here in a little while. You're just back from Long Island today, Ken, where you visited... George Vesey, long-time sports columnist for the New York Times. Yes, um, George Vesey. Uh, I've been writing sports columns about, well, I mean, he's, in Amer- he's writing for an American newspaper. And most of his work uh, has been on American sports. But he also was one of the, um, one of the first kind of high-profile journalists in America to start covering football seriously, uh, particularly the World Cup. And, uh, well, he ended up... Uh, he, he, his first World Cup was 1982, and he, he went to them all up until the one in South Africa in 2010, uh, and wrote a book about that, uh, about the eight World Cups a couple of years ago. But, you know, it, it, someone who I thought was, was kind of well-placed to talk about um, the story of football in America, you know, he, he comes from, um, you know, he comes from around here. Uh, I grew up in a sort of community um, where the game was actually played, um, you know, uh, when he was established as a journalist, he thought, you know, this, it's, we really should be doing a little bit more coverage. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is actually quite a big deal mm-hmm. in the rest of the world. You know, it might be worth having a look yeah, at. Yeah, is there so. an actual reason why we don't like Should we maybe look inward a little bit here and yeah. uh, analyze our own thoughts on the game rather than just ignoring it? What is, our, what is actually going on here? So he, he kind of led the way on that to, to a great extent, uh, did a lot of good work uh, reporting the game. So I thought it'd be interesting to talk to him. So I went out to his house earlier on in... Port Washington, where he very kindly had me over, gave me a piece of uh, pie and everything, <laughs> uh, and a cup of coffee, and uh, we had a chat. George West, Vesey, it's, uh, it's great to speak to you. Thanks for uh, having us over to your house. Oh, it was a pleasure to entertain a, a fellow Irishman, he put <laughs> <laughs> Fellow Irishman. Well, you, yeah, I was surprised to learn that you are, in fact, Irish. How did that, uh, how did that come about? Is that, the, is that the right way to put it? It came about through uh, my grandmother, born in County Waterford in 1875, and made her way to Europe, uh, Liverpool, and South America as a governess, and married a guy from the White Star Line, and uh, she wound up being over here in America, uh, and so here I am. 
So you are you are a New York Times sports columnist of many uh, many maybe you could tell me exactly how many sure. years. I started doing the column in 1982 and I retired in 2011. So it was quite soon after you'd started, or maybe it was before you started writing the column, I'm not sure, that you had the idea of going to see the World Cup in Spain in 1982. Can you tell me, first of all, how you got, you know, how you developed the idea that this might be an interesting thing to do? Um, I played, I'll call it football. You know, over here we, they say soccer, but I, I tend to like to say football because it makes me happy. Um, I started playing in high school. I was terrible uh, defender. And then I kept an eye on the sport while I was in college. I played every fall. We would have a gym class, and I would make sure I'd get in the, the one that had, you know, stressed soccer or football. And I, I kept an eye on it, although I have to admit, in 1966, when I was in Europe in, in the spring, in April and May, I wasn't even aware that the World Cup was coming up in, in, uh, in England, and I didn't pay attention to the results until 1967 when the great documentary came out. And I went to see that, the, the, um, the one about England winning the, the World Cup and all the different teams in there. It was just so great artistically, and it just turned me on to the sport and to the concept of it, the, the travel, the people, the, the way this sport was different from any other sport. And uh, when I became a columnist, well, actually, when I went into the sports department in 1980, I went back to sports. I'd been many, but I was a news reporter for 10 years. I went back to sports in 1980, and uh, I, the paper said, well, make up your own schedule, but we can't send you for five weeks. How about going for three? So I missed the whole first round, and I show up. I, I, I chose Barcelona because I knew the city. It was a beautiful city, uh, whatever the other choices were. So I went to have that wonderful little triangle group, that second-round group with Argentina, Italy, and Brazil. And if you can't fall in love with the sport by being in Barcelona, by being around the fans of those very three different nations, but all of them great football powers, even at the time, and to be wandering around the streets of Barcelona, Las Ramblas, and all of a sudden you hear this noise, and around the corner comes these beautiful people, polyglot, uh, you know, polycolor Brazilian people, you know, the men, the women, uh, the music, the chant, you know, the drums, the, the horns, and it was just amazing to see that there was, they call it the, the, the torcida, you know, which yeah. means sort of like the twist, but they mean the, the group of fans. And here comes this torcida, and uh, it was just nuts. And then the football was pretty good, too. Now, in, in your book, Eight World Cups, you talk a little bit about uh, what you encountered. I mean, as someone who was interested in football and, and as a journalist who was writing about it, something more than disinterest or lack of interest from your fellow Americans. Uh, you say something closer to hatred. Yeah, Americans have, um, Americans of my generation, you know, yeah. and now I'm, I'm, as we talk, I'm 76, but Americans of my generation, and so go back 30, 40 years, there was no, they didn't care. And, and I really think that for people of, of this age that soccer had, the connotations of crowds, noise, danger, and I've even worked it out in my mind that somehow or other it goes back to World War II, um, you know, the Holocaust, the armies marching across, the idea of the hooligans, and there are hooligans, um, 
that that it, it it's an excuse and then to not know the sport so even the the best and the brightest friends of mine who covered sport at the same time came along with me and I know them to be good journalists and and good reporters you know good sports writers that that they just didn't care and they would find reasons they could look at a play I mean let's say a World Cup match in 1982 and if you was there weren't many Americans there but let's say you know, Falcao and uh, and Junior and, and all those guys and Socrates and the ball would go, a couple of people would handle it, the, the pass would go up, somebody would go up, Junior would go up, uh, Adair would go up 10 feet in the air and the header would go an inch over the, the, the goal and, uh, you know, it would still be nil-nil. And the American attitude was, but nothing happened. And I say, did you see the way Falcao controlled the ball with the inside of his knee, let it drop, and ran for 30 yards, and then... But I could see it. Now, not that I was a visionary, because bluntly speaking, and I mentioned this in my book, I needed all the help I could get. I, my eye, I'd been watching the Cosmos and the North American Soccer League. I couldn't follow the sport. I couldn't follow World Cup football because it was so fast and so good. And I'd say to somebody, what just happened? There was a guy working for, for the Associated Press who was Italian-American. He lived over there. And uh, I said, what just happened? And he said, oh, well, that was Graziani, and he passed. And then Rossi came down the left side. He got behind Leandro uh, and and burned him, and that's how they got the, and. That's the way it was. I had to have explained to me. I wasn't geared up to be able to understand what these guys could do with their bodies. And an American would say most of the time, but nothing happened. Uh, I mean, I've always found that a little, uh, a little interesting because of the fact that, you know, so many Americans uh, are, you know, the children of sort of European European immigrants and often comparatively recent immigrants. You know, I'm not I'm not talking about necessarily in the 19th century before this game had spread across Europe. They would have been coming from countries in which uh, this was a popular sport. I mean, for instance, there's this uh, there's a movie was out recently, Brooklyn. I don't know if you mm, saw it. I did not. But uh, I know about it, yeah. So, uh, so one of the things that is like. Um, the, this girl who's kind of the central character in it, she, she falls in love with this Italian guy. Uh, and there's this kind of r- running joke in it about how, uh, is he talking to you about baseball yet? Um, this, this idea that, like, basically these young Italian guys, all they want to do is talk about baseball. And there's, like, no baseball fans in Italy. You know, how, how, how did it come, how did it come to be that, uh, Italians in the United States, uh, you know, kind of, uh, weren't interested in, in football or all these immigrants didn't kind of carry the game with them? Why was that? Well, the American experience is you for the American immigrant experience has always been that you drop as much as you could of it. My father, who was born on this side and adopted into a Hungarian family, um, who had roots right you know back hundreds of years. Veche is a Hungarian name going back forever, and uh, he maintained to his dying day that he didn't speak Hungarian. But when the uh, freedom fighters came over in 1956 and landed at the Associated Press, uh, where he worked in New York City. The the editor said, "George, you you're Hungarian." You and my father's no, I don't say. But he could when when they start to explain how they had to crawl under the barbed wire, you know, whatever their experiences were. My father uh, could understand and could translate or get the drift of it. But the point was, when you came to America or when you were trying to be American, you lost your your not just your language, which is really a tragic American experience up until recently. Where, frankly, I'm I'm thrilled when people are bilingual. You know, we know people who are. But 
it, it also meant that you wouldn't have any interest in it. Your, your parents would be baseball fans if you were Italian from the other side. Your parents would be baseball fans. And unless now it's fashionable again to have roots and people have gone back and kept up their roots and they know that their home team is, is Bari or, uh, you know, Palermo or yeah. something. But, but that wasn't the case a generation back. And, of course, with baseball and Italians, the Yankees had the great DiMaggio, you know, son of uh, immigrant fishermen in, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And that was the Yankees have traditionally, they had, at one point, they had DiMaggio, they had Lazzari from San Francisco, and then Rizzuto from Queens, and they had a whole legacy of Italian, great Italian players. So mm-hmm. that would explain part of that, in you know, particularly in the New York area. I mean, one of the things I was struck by when I read your book is the similarity in your response uh, kind of emotionally to the Italian international team to to uh, another book by an American about football, um, Joel McGuinness's book, uh, The Miracle right. of Castle de Sangro. Right. And he had been to see, I think it was the 94 World Cup originally. In, right. in kind of, but uh, both, both yourself and himself seemed to almost... So I don't. I don't think you're actually saying this at any point, but seem to feel that Italy is the real heartland of this sport. Like this is where you find the kind of that that the way Italians live the game of football, the kind of the behavior of the people, you know, the kind of emotional uh, crowds and this and the way they were so into it was was exactly what you and he seem to love about the game or seem to respond to. Well, first of all, uh, Joe McGuinness, we got to be friends late in life. I knew him as a young reporter. He's a couple of years younger than me, but. He blamed me for his Jones on, on football okay. because he said, for me going over in 82 and 86 and covering the World Cup, that got him in, in, his, in his brain that he wanted to do it. So, but but what, you know, what is there about Italy? I mean, I love their very militant anthem. The words are militant, but it's, it's a tarantella. Yeah. You know, you hear, <laughs> what a merry little tarantella. But meanwhile, what they were saying is, well, I will shed my blood for you. I'm ready to die. Yeah. But that's in the, you know, uh, morire. But you, know, you only know that if you, 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 you know, if you speak a few words of it. But there's just something about Italy that, that makes me very happy. The food, the, the hours, the people's attitude, and the fact that my bad Italian, that I get smiles from my bad Italian, oh, parlo molto bene. I don't parlo molto bene, but but that's thank you. And and in France, I speak French much better. I love France, as Donald Trump would say. Yeah, I yeah. love France. <laughs> the French love me, and and I do. But but <laughs> exactly. But to be in France and to know that you're speaking it not too badly. Oh, you know certain things. You know, je, je voudrais. Six croissant. Ah, no, monsieur. Six croissant. Okay, Dropping the X. And, right. But but I love that, too. Yeah. But, you know, there's no point in being a wannabe Frenchman because you, you can't make it. You um, you got to meet uh, the power brokers over the years. Um, uh, I was interested to read about Blatter coming here before the World Cup mm-hmm. in, in the United States mm-hmm. and apparently genuinely worried that nobody was going yeah. to turn up. Yeah. Uh, Blatter just struck me as a kind of a you know, cute little guy. Yeah. And he's, ah, oh, you know, who, will, will people come? Will anybody care? Uh, the, 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 the stadiums, the, your, your football stadiums are too narrow for our football. Well, we're worried about having to squeeze them in. Will anybody? I said, no, 
the United States, we put on super, there's such a thing as the Super Bowl. There's such a thing as the Final Four. We put on rock, you know, Bob Dylan can go across America. Bruce Springsteen can go across America and sell everywhere. We know how to do this stuff. But he, we have hotels. We have courtyards out on the edge of town where people can, we can, you know, you're not going to have to worry about that stuff. Mm. But but now kind of the other part of it. They held a, a draw meeting um, or pre-World Cup thing in Las Vegas in November, December of 1993. And they put on a pretty nice show, but this is for an American audience. And who do you want at an American, in a, in a television show aimed at the American audience? You want Pele. Who's, everybody knows Pele. Everybody knows his smile. Everybody knows his that a great foot, even if they don't care about, they know Pele. He's the one thing Americans knew in 1993. But Pele had criticized FIFA and Avalanche because he's Brazilian, he knew he knew the beast. He knew yeah. what what was going on, and he'd made a few comments about FIFA and Avalanche, and so Blatter, who was running the show, said, or oh, maybe it was Avalanche who said, "I don't want to see that man on television." So there's Pele in the third row, but the camera never went on him. He was never introduced. He should have been on stage. There were other people on stage. It was just nuts, and uh, and I said. I thought to myself, and I wrote this, if if they can do this to Pele, if they can make him, you know, it's like the old Soviet Union where suddenly a general would be airbrushed out, you know, yeah. of the, 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 the Politburo. And, they, you know, Commissar, Commissar Blatter had airbrushed uh, Pele out of the group photo. Yeah. And so, so I said, if they can do that to Pele, what couldn't they do? And that has colored my feeling about FIFA ever since. Go fast forward to 2002, the uh, election in Seoul, South Korea, where Blatter is challenged by his own number two guy. Now he's the boss. He's challenged by a guy, Michel Zerovinen, who was a a, a Dudley do-right, as they say in Canada, you know, the kind of a, a straight shooter. And he's raising questions about financial improprieties by FIFA and by that that bogus uh, marketing arm that it had, what was it, ISL or yeah. ISIS or whatever the hell it was. <laughs> um, and, 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 there, and there comes the, uh, the election, and Blatter gets up, and by now his English is quite good, and forcefully he says, you are done. I will get you. You will never. And, and, then, and then he was running against. <laughs> You're his, done. I will get you. You know, you know that kind of thing. He's <laughs> saying this. And we were not in the, in the meeting room, but, but yeah. it was being piped in. By this time, you know, the world press needed to know. And we're hearing this stuff. Whoa. Uh, so Blatter was threatened. Zen Ruffinen, And then Issa Hayatu was running against him, the African guy. And he was, we will get him too. And, and, and all that. The Blatter just, you, it was raw anger at being challenged, at being called. I don't even think Zen Ruffinen was saying criminality. I think he was saying financial problems, improprieties, deficits. You know, he was just saying, we, we don't have the money we say we do or we think we do, blah, blah. But but Blatter was going after this guy's jugular. He was going to you know cut his throat and throw him over for the sharks. Yeah. And I said, wow, these are so. I, it, my education was slow and I was naive. But you know, reporters, if you're an honest reporter, it helps to be naive at least uh, to not make accusations until yeah. they start to fall off. But that's where I began to see the dark side. The situation now in America is, is so different from the way that it was. I mean, you know, I was interested to to learn that. In 2003, Jurgen Klinsmann was able to register 
under a fake name, Jay Guppingen, as right. a as a, as an right. amateur player right. for a club in California, and kind of play for a while before anyone right. said this guy's you know really good. What, who right. is this guy? Everybody knew it. Oh, did they? They, yeah. they knew. Everybody knew. Guppingen is his hometown yeah. in Bavaria. Or yeah. Something. Yeah. Um, yeah, Jurgen was playing out there, and I think, you know, first of all, a striker or you know a guy of his ability, you're only as good as somebody getting you the ball. Yeah. yeah. So if you've got, you know, and I'm blank, you know, who would have gotten him the ball on Germany? But you know, those great midfielders putting yeah. the ball up on his foot or his head, um, you, you know, you're not going to take on ten even even good semi-pro people in Southern California. So did he scored some goals. I believe he scored. Five and eight. It was five and eight. Okay, yeah. well, that's pretty good yeah. for anybody, but it's not like, you know, 16 goals in eight, yeah. in eight matches. So I, I think everybody was in on it. Oh, look, okay. look, George Weah used to play. He, he had a house. You know, he was mostly an expat, a Liberian expat living in, you know, probably half an hour from where we're sitting here. He had a restaurant in Brooklyn. He lived, His family was salted out in some decent suburb on Long Island. And he would play in Metropolitan Oldville, this wonderful place that I played when I was in high school. I was a, a visiting player coming in once a year. And it's just this, like like Delphi, you know, the center of the universe. You get in there and you just know it's the heart of New York soccer. And he would go in playing for semi-pro teams with with other names. But everybody in there knew, oh, that's George Weah. How, you know, how can he get away with FIFA? But there he is. And, you know, <laughs> Weah wasn't exactly, you know, running the, the game either. He was, you know, he was a good player on a, on a team of good, you know, mostly African yeah. and uh, European people. But it's like now, I mean, I, I was under the impression that maybe, you know, Klinsman was, was not, actually, in fact, everybody was in it. Uh, but the idea that someone so high profile in the game could could be anonymous uh, seemed to to show that this was not really a game that had conquered the country yet. It seems to be a little bit different now. I mean, I think you were telling me you're going to watch the Champions League tomorrow. Right. A lot of Americans do this kind of thing now, uh, watching, watching uh, soccer from Europe, obviously, um, the national team is huge. The, the women's national team is huge. Um, so, so it's like this 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 thing that people were predicting in the seventies and eighties has finally, you know, come to pass in the United States. But I wonder if if when you think about football now, if you think it's it's lost some of the things that originally drew you to it, would you still be as interested in the game today? You know, if you were starting out, does it, has it lost a little bit of you know the the idea when you were at the World Cup, say in eighty two, and you and Italy played a particular way. Brazil played a particular way. Argentina played it. You had these vivid contrasts, and they don't exist anymore. This is a real. There's a kind of a a, a much more homogenized sense to uh, football at the at the top level around the world. People increasingly are playing the same way. Do you think it's lost something over that time? Well, I appreciate what you're saying, but if somebody had said that in 2000, in the, early in 2008. Um, that there's no new way or, or old-fashioned way of playing football anymore. And then Spain would come along and win the Euros. I sat in a tapas bar in uh, in Manhattan and watched that, and then go over to South Africa and see Spain playing. I mean, Iniesta, throwback, you know, uh, distributor with, with, with all these other people, you know, on, on all sides of them. Total footballers, Puyol scoring a, you know, a header to beat... Uh, uh, you know Germany and uh, Spain was so it wasn't allowed to be beautiful in the final but you know you play you, you know that's the way the Dutch played but Spain brought us back to the way the 
the Dutch played and Barca played and the Hungarians had played before that. So it is possible. I mean, who doesn't love the way Germany plays now? They're gritty. They're tough as nails. They, they take no, you know, blah, blah, blah. But artistically... You're about to say they take no, no prisoners. I didn't say, I didn't say that. I didn't say <laughs> you that. had to correct... No, no, no. I didn't, I didn't say it's, that. No, it's, it's true, though. But, you, you know, you, I mean, you watch... There, there's, there, there can be good football, but it's, it's predicated... I mean, the size of people. And you just say to yourself, if, if, if the sport is getting bigger and faster and, and better in a way, they, these are great athletes. Yeah. And, and so middling nations, U.S., uh, you know they had their their good moments, uh, but but watch the Colombias and the Chiles and teams that aren't going to get to the semifinals necessarily. Now we're all still waiting for Africa, but but it may not happen because the great African players are playing for but you know by choice for by choice you know if, if they've got dual citizenship they're going to play for for France or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Well, George, this has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks hey. for uh, thanks for having us on. My pleasure. Thank you so much. George Vesey there, absolutely lovely chat you had with George. Seemed to get on really well with him. Yeah, very good guy. What was the, to go back and we'll discuss what he was talking about there, uh, but what was the pie? Yeah, sorry, pie earlier, I've been just... sitting here for, for ages. Just well, you see, the thing is that there was actually a choice of two pies. One of them was pecan pie and one of them was cranberry and something else. Oh, yeah, well, you go for well, pecan. No, he went for the cranberry. No, I did. Pe- pecan. He went for cranberry. I, uh, pecan, yeah, pecan. It had some kind of a nut. It had some kind of a nut content. It was extremely nice. I said, please, not too big a slice <laughs> with the old diabetes. I gotta, oh, yeah. gotta watch it, but I will have some pie. Mm. Uh, so yeah, uh, it was sorry. Big. Just to confirm, it was the cranberry one you went for. Can I have some pie it, and some insulin? Some insulin. Oh, and you would have been disappointed though. Uh, George uh, Vesey is not a memorabilia maniac uh, in the manner of yourself. I imagine if you were seventy-six uh, and uh, and hanging around in your in your house. Uh, I fancy there might be one or two pieces of... Uh, just a little photograph with Jerry Eisenberg over in Las Vegas there. Yeah. I think. Uh, there oh, who? Be... oh, no, me. That's just me talking to Pat Dolan after a St. Pat's <laughs> game. There might be... <laughs> there, what are you wearing? <laughs> uh, there might be There might be one or two pieces. But no, he keeps it upstairs in his, in his office. He's got a few bits and pieces up there. But otherwise, uh, otherwise he, he keeps that kind of clutter out of the way. Fortunately, Ken, he had lots of thoughts to share with you. I was most struck by what he was saying regarding the... Immigrants, immigrants coming into America, picking, essentially shedding their culture. As you were saying, the more obvious thing is that you bring part of your culture to the country that you're going to, and you would think that that would have helped soccer take off. He said, well, no, not really. They just said, better play baseball and fit in here. Yeah, uh, it's interesting that America kind of requires that of people, or, or certainly used to. Maybe it's not so much the case anymore, as, as George was saying, and as he was saying, you know, Americans themselves have a kind of... Uh, have an interest. A lot of them have, have that interest in, in discovering or tracing their own origins and sort of uh, determining where exactly, you know, which which parts of the old world, you know, maybe their ancestors came from. But it is interesting uh, that that happened in the United States because, for instance, another uh, the other country that uh, millions of Italian um, immigrants went to was Argentina. Yeah. And, you know, they all, I mean, Maradona is basically of Italian descent. Messi is of Italian descent. You know, these, uh, there's tons of, uh, you know, fantastic Argentinian footballers who were basically Italians. In fact, there are Argentinian footballers who played for Italy. Who <laughs> was the guy in the 2006 World Cup? Cameronese. Oh, of course. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I don't think he's the only one either. Um, 
So Argentine or Italian uh, immigrants to Argentina continued doing what they always did. I mean, it's not as though they didn't have options. Um, there was polo. <laughs> Actually, maybe there was rugby. Actually, maybe the problem was all the other sports were like English top sports mm. designed to exclude the masses. And there wasn't the sort of Argentinian baseball, uh, baseball yeah. or, you know, gridiron or whatever like that. Maybe, maybe that's the difference. But it does seem, you know, in America, kind of shedding all that stuff was part of what it took to, to be an American, to say, I'm an American. This is, I've, I've integrated here. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, this is what I'm all about now. All right, brilliant stuff with George Vesey. You know, in the early part of your career is notable for winning the European Under-16 Championships with Brian Kerr and being chased and signed by Alex Ferguson from Manchester United. It's got to be, I would imagine, amazingly hard, insanely hard to accept when that career is brought to an end ridiculously early by injury. Kevin Grogan went through all that. He's now building his coaching career in New York where he's the technical director of Clarkstown Soccer Club in Rockland County. And he popped into the Brass Monkey earlier. I thanked him, first of all, for coming in. Thank you very much for having me. It was Brian Kerr who sent us in your direction, Kevin. You mightn't be surprised to hear your former uh, underage manager with Ireland. How long have you been set up in New York? Um, I've been here five years now, so soccer is obviously a massive industry over here, particularly at youth level. So it's been an interesting journey for me. I've read, Kevin, that that Alex Ferguson helped you get your visa sorted when you're coming over. Is that right? Yeah, he wrote a reference to the embassy, which was obviously a massive help. I'm on an O1 visa, so it was kind of reference-based. So he kind of endorsed me as a person and former player and, and coach and yeah, definitely helped. On the Manchester United headed paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. always always good. You see, you've obviously got a good relationship with him. Was that what were your first? What was your first interaction with him? Were you sort of thirteen, fourteen, and he? Yeah, came, came I first him? went over on trial. I think I was twelve, and um, I had a decent week. And he called me up to his office and kind of said I did very well, and all the scouts were saying I did well, and to come back on my kind of next school holiday. Sorry, you were twelve. Yeah. And he called you up to the office. It was just, just you and him at that stage? Yeah, I remember it was the last day of the tryout and the scout at the time, Joe Corcoran from Dublin, um, brought me to the first team training ground to watch them train. And we were standing at the bottom of the stairs getting some autographs. And I was amazed when he came by because he said, Grogan, get up to my office. And the fact that he knew kind of who I was kind of shows <laughs> what a, an amazing manager he was, you know. But uh, yeah, he called me up and said I did well and asked me back for my next school holiday. It's quite, it's, I imagine if I was 12 and... Ferguson called me up to the office I'd be I, I would be too terrified to say anything yeah pretty much like you know more listening than anything else but um I, I think that's one thing he, he kind of one of his great assets he had a, this remarkable ability to remember people's names no matter if you were a eight nine ten eleven years of age or whether you were parents or whatever and he, he took a great interest in the youth and Obviously, he produced so many players. Did he bring the parents out for dinner, that kind of thing that we used to do? Yeah, if need be, yeah. He'd, he'd, he'd in, call your, in your case? He'd call you're... out to people's houses, or in one case, he, he rang my dad very early in the morning, one day, I think it was 6 a.m., and um, you know, just to have a chat with him. And I think there was a few other clubs in for me at the time, and just to kind of tell my parents that, you know, if I went to Manchester United, they'd look after me as a player and uh, on and off the pitch, you know. So he was very good like that. Yeah, it's amazing how directly involved he was. And you were coming into it. You signed for them officially 98, 99. Is that right? Yeah, 98. I would have been 15. I mean, I, legally, I should have waited till 16, but they kind of had a loophole through work <laughs> experience right. in, in Ireland. So rather than doing your two or three weeks work experience, they brought me over for the full year. And that got me over a year early before I could officially sign. That's a hell of a time to be signing for Manchester United. You're watching them win the treble uh, in your very early days there. How Were you confident in your own ability? Were you confident that you could mix it uh, at that sort of level? Yeah, I mean, obviously confidence is something that grows over time. But uh, I mean, it was difficult because of so many good players there. But you know you're getting the best education. 
and um, obviously I was unlucky with injuries but I think the, the level of coaching from the youth team up to the first team was so good so that kind of breeds confidence and the players are playing with and then you see the manager give quality players a chance young players as well so that gives you confidence that you can go on and do well in the game I think um, I mean the players we're talking about here are you know, obviously Keane was there when you were training with the first team did you how, how, how much did you get to train with them did you play matches with the, the likes of Keane and Giggs and Beckham yeah, I mean, I, did, I trained with them, got called in a few times and obviously with the reserves and um, some training matches and things like that. So I did get access to kind of training with those players. And then obviously in the youth team reserves, there was quality players as well, like Wes Brown or Luke Chadwick, David Healy. They were kind of in and around my age group. So, you know, I got exposed to training with players of that level. And I mean, it was it was a real learning curve for me. It was brilliant. What side of them did you kind of say? I mean, did they have Ferguson's gift of being able to remember your name? Um, yeah, players. You know, players are are kind of caught up in what they're they're themselves. Kind of, you know, there's a lot of obviously ego at, at that level. But uh, I mean, in general, the first team players were good. And, and you know, I was quiet and shy. I was only 15, 16, 17 years of age. But you kind of look back and wish you talked to them more and got more advice from them. But uh, I remember one time when I was at UCD and I went back for a week's training and I was with the first team and Roy Keane just happened to be on the plane with me on the way back and. He had a chat with me and he offered a lift actually to the training ground, but I had a lift already. But he looked after me that week and made sure I was okay, you know. Yeah, I wanted to ask you which side of Roy Keane you saw. It sounded like you, you, you got the, yeah, I mean that, the that, good side. That particular week when I went back, he was very, very good in training and, you know, asking did I need lifts after training and things like that. So he, he was pretty good, you know. How early on did the injury start hampering you? I mean, we, uh, As I mentioned, Brian Kerr put us in touch with you and he's... Um, you know, he talked fondly of the under-16 days you were involved in the European Cup win uh, when Ireland won it. Uh, under-18, I should say. Uh, sorry, under-16 European uh, uh, Championship, yeah. Was the injury already hampering you at that stage? Initially, I had some issues with Osgood's Slatter's disease, which is more growing pain. So it wasn't a big issue because you grow out of that. So I did have issues with that during the kind of early Ireland days, which was more kind of rest when it was sore and if it wasn't sore playing. But it was probably after the first full season in Man United that I started getting the real issues, which was with my pelvis. And they couldn't really figure out what was wrong, and it turned out to be erosion on the pelvis. And um, so it started pretty early, and then it was a case of, you know, an operation, a rehab, a comeback, and I'd be flying for two or three months, and then I would break down again. So I never really got a good run at it. So it was pretty, after probably the first year, it really started. What was your sort of mental state like when that started happening? Yeah, it was tough. I mean, you know, you're away from home anyway and a bit of homesickness and things like that. So when you're stuck in a treatment room for most of the time, it becomes difficult. Um, and then you... So you it just you... It was one of these situations where you were literally going over. It wasn't like your parents were over some of the time or, or that kind no, of No, and again, I, I talked to the parents up, up in Clarkstown about this. You know, it's a different, it was a different world. You know, you, you leave at 15 and, you know, you get to go home, I think, four or five times a year for a weekend and maybe your parents come over once or twice to it's visit very you. And you're staying in digs, obviously, with a family. And, um, yeah, so it's difficult and you get homesick, but particularly if you're not playing, you know. Yeah. So I was stuck in the treatment room for a long periods of time and then you'd kind of work hard in rehab and then you'd get the buzz of getting back playing and maybe get to have a few good games and then you'd break down again. So it became very difficult. I remember seeing you playing in UCD. You mentioned yeah. it there and I was talking to you before uh, coming on air about this and um, being hugely impressed by, by, by your, your, your ability. 
but also quite intrigued by the plan at that stage. You were still with Manchester United, was it? Was it kind of coming back to the League of Ireland with a with a view to getting back over? Yeah, I mean, there was a, an option to have another operation, which was a bit drastic. We decided not to have that, and I remember talking to Brian Kerr and him giving me advice and. He kind of thought maybe coming back, trying to get an education and the doctors, Pat O'Neill, actually back home, the former GAA player, he kind of suggested that if I trained at a kind of lesser intensity, this might go away by itself as I develop develop a bit more. So the logic was to come back for two years, get an education, play at a good level, but not train as much, and then kind of go back to Man United, you know, every couple of months to train, and then by the end of the two years to, to go back full time. Yeah, and, and to be fair, Man United agreed to it and they understood, so... And that didn't quite work out. You ended up at Millwall for a while. Yeah, so at the end of the two years, I had the option to go back to Man United, but I also had the option then to go to Millwall. And I just felt at the time I'd missed so much and it was so start-stop um, that I felt going to Millwall had a more realistic chance to get into the first team quicker. Um, Mick McCarthy was still linked to the club in some ways. He used to manage there. And I, I kind of thought that if I got in there, I had a better chance to get into the Irish team. So it was kind of, you know, it was a decision based on what I felt was best for their career. You, I mean, you can, we can hear how, how kind of hard you were fighting to sort of keep your career going. Does that, the, the longer you kind of fight something like that, does it make it even harder to reach the eventual decision? I mean, how, how did you come to the decision that uh, you were going to have to Yeah, retire? it was, a, you know, I suppose I got a bit desperate in the end. And I mean, I, the last operation I had was in Belgium. And, you know, I, I'd stopped playing probably three years previous to that. And I had retired. But I got this option to go to Belgium with one of the top doctors in the world. He reckoned he, he might be able to get me back, but if not, he would help me for everyday living for when I'm older. So I decided to give it a go, moved over for a year, had an operation, did rehab, um, got back playing, went to St. Pat's to get my match fitness up before I'd go back to England, and uh, you know I broke down again. I mean, you could argue that I probably shouldn't have done that, maybe a bit of desperation there. But How do you occupy your mind when you're in this really long-term process of rehabilitation? I mean, you're doing... You know, you, you don't have games to think about. You sort of, all, all the sort of normal stuff that might be filling a footballer's head. I mean, what was kind of in your head during these, these years? Um, well, I suppose you're just trying to battle on and a bit of hope there that, that you're going to be okay. And, uh, you know, you just have to get on with it and try, you know. But as I said, I think near the end, there was a bit of desperation there. I probably should have not gone to Belgium, but, but I did it and I don't regret it, I suppose. Were you thinking about other, other things or other ways that you could develop? Um, you know, you don't. I suppose when you're playing, you're you're still trying to play. You don't think too far ahead. But I suppose then, once the Belgium thing didn't work out, I knew that was definitely the end. So it was a case of kind of picking your career up then and seeing what you want to do. And you know, now I coach and I'm a decent coach now. But when I first started, I was probably a horrible coach. <laughs> you know, you think that oh, well, you're a player, you're going to be a great coach. I had knowledge, but I probably didn't know how to get that across. So it took me a while to work at that. But once I kind of realised I had to work at it. Then I started becoming a better coach. Well, it's, it's interesting. Ken interviewed Damien Duff last year, and he is you know, just getting started coaching-wise. And he's, <laughs> he was saying that in one of his first sessions at Shamrock Rovers, the manager said, OK, Duffer, here's the left winger. You know, just go and tell him how to be a left winger. Yeah, yeah. And Duff didn't have a clue, just, just froze. It couldn't yeah. just, he couldn't actually say anything, and he's starting to get his head around it now. But yeah, it takes not, time. Not automatic. It does take time. You've got to work at it, and you've got to, like, you know, obviously do your badges. You've got to talk to people you know in the game. But the best experience is just getting out there and putting sessions on and understand how to plan a session and how to progress a session and things like that. So it took time for me, but once I realized I had to work at it, and I think that's the key, I think some players think they're just going to be good coaches and they probably coach and think they are good coaches when they're not. So once I kind of came to terms, I'm going to have to work really hard at this. Um, Then slowly but surely I started getting better. But you're enjoying it. Loving it, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, listen, Kevin, it's been great. You're our first guest in Brass Monkey this week, so thanks so much. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it.
That's one of those things. Stop it! How many players can do this? Duffman can never die. He's 34 years old. It's one of those things. Duffman can never die. Only the actors who play him. No, he did. No, he did. Do you think Robbie Keane just said, you know what? Any questions about me being the MVP of this league? I think he just said right there. Oh, yeah. He's got more of a tan than me. Excellent stuff from Kevin Grogan there. Sounds like it took him a while to build a new career and, well, to let go of the dream, first of all, of his playing career, but. It uh, seems like he's really made a home for himself and made a career for himself in New York. Absolutely incredible how hands-on Alex Ferguson was in the mid to late 90s there, Ken. This is long <laughs> after his legend was secured. He's still the one meeting Kevin Grogan, bringing him to the office, calling his dad just to make sure to ward off all the other managers looking for the, the, a little bit of interest from a really talented young player. Incredible that he was still at that level of hands-on involvement. Yeah, um, you, you hear a story like that and you kind of think, maybe it's not that surprising that he turned out to be quite difficult to replace. You know, uh, so many fingers in so many Manchester United pies that when those fingers were withdrawn, mm. all that was left was a bunch of holes, really. Just a bunch of holy pies. Yeah. You know? You know? And, no one and even wants the pies anymore because even, of all the fingers. So it, was the, the, it was the fingers that were almost warming the pies. Mm. And by the time it, it was gone... It kind of stirred the, the, the meats. And it was just nothing. Yeah. Ed Woodward says to... Louis Van Hal early on. Now, Louis, um, Nanny's not too happy. He's not playing much. You, can you just have a good chat with him? And maybe ring uh, his family as well. He's got an uncle who he's very fond of. Just yeah. have a chat with him as well, just to make sure everything's... And Van Hal's thinking, what, what are you talking about? I'm going to tell <laughs> this guy what, what to do. And he's a grown man. Yeah. He turns up for training. I train him, and then he goes home. He goes home and spends all his money. That's it from the Irish Times Second Captain's New York football podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Massive thanks again to Aer Lingus and Fitzpatrick Hotels Manhattan for making this all happen. Uh, Johnny Glynn was in our uh, big star of our first podcast today. Murph, we had a good chat with your county man, Johnny Glynn. Yeah. I was a bit confused by some of it, you know, a lot of the Galway talk. They got a lot what of parts of the county are football, what parts well, are hurling, all that kind of our stuff. Our got a mention, and I could see your eyes getting glazed over on, but, but we, we, we soldiered on. But when he talked about the time he cursed on live on national television, I, I, that was, was my kind of cup of tea. I had a really nice guy. I had a good chat with Johnny. Wednesday night is the big one. Andy Lee and John Duddy together is a huge treat if you're a boxing fan. Des Bishop is going to be here. Henry Shepherd's going to be here. We'll have Champions League reaction. And we'll have a load of, hopefully, very, very excited people living in New York coming to Brass Monkey. In the meantime, thanks very much, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Owen. Thank you, Karen. Thanks, Mary. Thanks for the Statue of Liberty. We had a Sorry? Statue of Liberty. Do you want to join me heading up the Statue of Liberty? Uh, it's meant to be good, good views. Uh, could always just look uh, at a picture of the Statue of Liberty. Uh, and okay. I'll buy a postcard of it on. I'll go on my own. Thanks, guys. <laughs> It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys.